John Kukla received his bachelor's from Carthage College and his master's and PhD from the University of Toronto. He served as director of historical research and publishing at the Library of Virginia, curator and then director of the Historic New Orleans Collection, and then as director of Red Hill, the Patrick Henry National Memorial in Charlotte County. He is author of A Wilderness So Immense, The Louisiana Purchase and the uh, Destiny of America, Mr. Jefferson's Women, and most recently, Patrick Henry, Champion of Liberty, which he'll be speaking on today, and of course, copies will be available to be signed following. Please join me in a warm welcome for John Kukla. It's an extraordinary delight to be here. Um, I've been coming into these uh, rooms for a long time. I was trying to remember whether I first joined the Historical Society in 73 or 74. But uh, I've been, uh, so it's an it's a absolutely light, delight to be here, uh, a place where I've uh, conducted a great deal of uh, research over the last 40 plus years. I want to talk uh, today about, obviously, Patrick Henry, uh, based on the uh, book that came out about a month ago, a book that I've been working on for uh, uh, about 10 years. Um, but let me start by uh, reminding you, of course, Henry was a, a, an extraordinary orator. Um, by the end of the hour, perhaps I will have persuaded you that he was a few more things than, than, than an orator. But, um, but he was always an extraordinary orator and a very effective uh, uh, trial, trial lawyer. In the 18th century, both before and after the American Revolution, the local courts, whether they were the county courts before the revolution or the uh, circuit courts afterwards, um, had arranged their schedules so that uh, attorneys um, could practice in a number of courts and, uh, and typically they would, uh, oh, you know, Goochland might meet on the first Tuesday of the month and Fluvanna on the second Wednesday of the month and so on. Uh, so that uh, a number of, we have a number of accounts of, uh, of practicing attorneys after the war, after the American Revolution, or when Henry was, uh, was, was famous, um, who, um, who remember events something like this. Uh, they, they finished arguing their case in whatever county and uh, decided that they, um, that, that they could take a little time before getting on their horse to go on to the next county because uh, they got wind that, um, that the great Patrick Henry would be speaking in the next case. And so uh, uh, the one account that I particularly in mind, the guy said to himself, well, I can, I can listen for 20 minutes and then, and then I'll have to be, be on my way. And so he listened to Henry speak for, for 20 minutes and then looked at his watch and realized that an hour and a half had passed. Um, and I say that to remind you that I am not Patrick Henry and that... Um, <laughs> Let's let's just quickly. What what I thought I would do today is is uh, is is hit sort of four four topics. Um, first, a little bit of an introduction as to place Henry in, uh, uh, in kind of a survey of his of his of his life and his uh, uh, times. Um, secondly, I, I I'll try to talk a little bit about uh, the the Parsons Clause and the Stamp Act, which was the real beginning of his uh, uh, political career. Uh, third, I'd like to say a few words about Henry and his involvement with, um, uh, with, with slavery. And, and finally, uh, try to talk a little bit about uh, Henry and his relationships with, uh, uh, with Jefferson and, and particularly with, uh, with George Washington. And, and let me second the invitation to, to take a look at that splendid uh, uh, exhibit of, uh, of really wonderful paintings um, upstairs uh, if, you, if you get a chance. Henry was born in 1736 in Hanover County. He died in 1799 um, in, at, at Red Hill in, uh, in, in Charlotte County. So he lived 63 years. He lived, um, uh, resided all over the state. One of his uh, 
childhood friends um, said that Patrick Henry changed houses as easily as other people change underwear. Uh, and, and he did live in 12 places during his, uh, during his uh, 60, 63 years uh, here in the Commonwealth. Um, he came to, well, let's see, his, his father was a Scots immigrant um, educated at the University of Aberdeen, um, four, four years of college, but, but no, um, no, no diploma. Um, I think it's an interesting commentary on the difference between uh, 18th century and 21st century um, educational what standards. Um, in, uh, in, in 18th century Scotland, you had to pay extra to get the actual sheepskin certificate. <laughs> and what was the point of that? Uh, so Henry, uh, Henry's father was in the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia in, in Hanover County by the 1720s. Um, like many prominent um, Virginia gentry, um, one of the uh, uh, what highlights of his early uh, career and success was to marry a wealthy widow, um, which, which, he, which he did in the uh, early 1730s. Uh, Henry is the second of, uh, uh, of, of their children together. Uh, he and his older brother, William, uh, were uh, partners in, uh, in Henry's uh, short-lived attempt to be a, um, to be a, a storekeeper. Um, his edu Henry's education came largely at the hands of his college-educated father, who also ran as many men of similar uh, uh, attainments uh, uh, did. Um, who also ran a day school for, uh, for neighborhood boys um, uh, during, his, uh, during his years in Hanover. Um, Henry's oratory owes, I think, to, uh, to his, his skill as an orator, owes to two prominent um, um, influences. One was uh, the example of the Reverend Samuel Davies, who was a Presbyterian evangelist, uh, uh, evangelical minister, um, his his ministry was really part of the uh, of the Great Awakening um, in uh, in 18th century uh, in 18th century America and, and particularly in Virginia. Uh, Davies later uh, ends his career as uh, president of uh, of um, what's now Princeton University after he leaves Hanover. Um, Henry's mother, who was uh, Henry's father, and his uncle were both uh, staunch Anglicans. His his, uh, his dad was a member of the um, um, parish uh, vestry in 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 Hanover, um, and his uncle was the uh, was the parish priest for uh, his, his virtually his entire career uh, until I think seven, 1776 or seven or thereabouts when he when he dies. Um, but his mother went to uh, the Presbyterian services conducted by Samuel Davies, who was uh, uh, an, an outstanding orator, um, somewhat in the, um, in the vein of uh, the English uh, evangelical uh, preacher uh, George Whitfield, who was uh, almost a rock star in 18th century uh, America as, as he gathered people to, uh, to listen to his preaching. And the story goes that Henry's mother, on the ride back home after Davies's uh, services, would uh, would question Henry and presumably his siblings about what they'd heard, what the lessons were, how the how the um, uh, how the sermon was uh, was uh, structured and presented, and so on. And so we know that Henry had uh, had had that uh, very significant influence uh, in early in his life as as an orator. The other, the other one is a, a little bit less uh, intuitive, I guess, and that is by all accounts of people who knew him when he was young, um, Henry was an, inc an incredibly empathetic listener. Um, and so apparently in, in, in just social conversation, chit chat, uh, uh, he made people feel at home, um, and as some of, as some of his uh, 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 friends later said, he was able to essentially elicit a lot of information from people by just uh, um, asking them questions and engaging in you know common commonplace talk and hearing what people said. And very very clearly, 
um, as a trial lawyer, as a as a uh, public speaker, as a candidate for office, or as a member of the legislature, um, Henry had an amazing capacity for empathy and attention to his listeners. Um, I kind of think of him a little bit like, uh, if you remember Peter Falk playing Columbo, um, uh, sometimes he would have notes. In fact, they're up in the up in the library here in, in the in the archives. There's a uh, some undated uh, notes of Henry's on a very small card, and he would sometimes start with that, and, and he'd fiddle with his glasses and sort of uh, desultory comments and so on, um, until he had figured out from that kind of interaction with his audience how best to present the arguments that would achieve his purposes. Um, and then uh, many, many of the uh, uh, friends or almost fans uh, would say that there, there, something, something transformative happened when Henry, when Henry suddenly went from just talking to the kind of flights of oratory that he was capable of. Um, they, they talk about how he was, a, he was a man of probably average height and a little bit stoop-shouldered. Uh, but when the, when the oratory started, he sort of rose to his full height. And then one of the other features of this, and you'll see this in, in, in many of the images that survive of, uh, of Henry, is that uh, he may have started off slowly, but then the glasses would go up. And, and this was, uh, his friends referred to this as, this was the war cant. And it was like, <laughs> whoa, here it comes. It's puzzling, perhaps. Uh, it's puzzling, perhaps, that Henry, as prominent as he was in the Revolution in Virginia, um, was uh, is not as as well remembered as many of his contemporaries. I th I think I've been you know in, in fielding questions from uh, you know radio and podcast interviewers and whatever. Uh, that's that's one of the questions that always comes up. How you know how come we don't know more about him aside from give me liberty or give me death? And I'm I'm convinced that one of the main reasons is that he uh, aside from two years in 1774 and 1775 when he served in the first and second continental congresses, um, Henry Henry never held national office, um, and so um, he doesn't have the kind of uh, um, what national reputation that comes for many of the Virginians who who served as president or in John Marshall's case as uh, as, as chief justice and and, and so on. Henry's um, Henry's career, uh, his political career started in the very early 1760s uh, in the Parsons Clause and the Stamp Act, and and we'll turn to that in a, in a second. Uh, but it extended. Um, he remained active in politics until the early years of the 1790s. So therefore, his career uh, spanned the entire American Revolution. Um, he died in 1799. And uh, as some of you probably know, he, uh, he was called back into politics um, in the spring of 1799 by, uh, by a letter from, uh, from George Washington asking him to uh, to, to come serve and try to uh, bring his wisdom to what was in the 1790s, a very, very um, uh, nasty uh, and, and divisive period of, uh, of American uh, political history at the beginning of the, what becomes the two-party system, um, and, and a period that was also shaped by uh, animosities uh, from abroad uh, stemming from the uh, the, the, the French Revolution and, 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 and the like. So Henry's involvement, his, his participation, he was, he was present at all of the big moments uh, of, the, uh, of the revolution in, um, in, in North America. Um, and it was that that uh, attracted me about uh, 10 years ago to, uh, to writing a book, not the book that, uh, that, that has now been published, but quite a different book, what I was, what I wanted to do was, was I wanted to try to write a book about Virginia in the American Revolution. It's a, a Virginia's place in the uh, national story. I think has has not had not yet 
been told, uh, or certainly the story that I saw hadn't, uh, hadn't yet been told. And so basically, uh, 10 years ago, uh, my uh, uh, literary agent and myself uh, shopped around an idea about doing a book uh, in, which, in which Henry would nat naturally figure because he, uh, he was present at all of these events. In fact, in fact um, looking back on it, um, Henry was, because he was involved in the Parsons Cause on the Stamp Act, which is the Stamp Act crisis is basically 1764 to 66 when the Stamp Act is repealed, and then all the way through the ratification of the Constitution, the passage of the Bill of Rights and the like, there were contemporaries of his who were prominent in the Stamp Act crisis and the, the Townshend duties crisis, and eventually the you know Declaration of Independence and the like. But many of those folks died before uh, you know before the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia and before the thing was ratified and so on. So when you look back at at the sort of cast of characters for the. Uh, for the American Revolution. Arguably, Washington wasn't involved in the events of the Revolution until the later um, uh, 1760s. So um, Henry ends up in a really kind of unique position, almost unique position. Uh, the, the other guy who lived through all of those events and stood near the center of lots and lots and lots of them was this fellow named George III. So that was the book that I was starting on um, 10 years ago. And at that point, um, I was quite clear that I didn't think that the world needed yet another biography of Patrick Henry. Um, surely, I thought uh, everything had already been uh, said uh, about, about him. Uh, five years into the project, my, my editor <clears throat> was um, convinced me to, to revisit that, uh, that assumption. Um, and, uh, and persuaded me that, uh, that, that maybe a, a cradle-to-the-grave biography of Patrick Henry was a good idea. Um, and, and two things kind of changed my, uh, my perspective. One is that when you look at a group of people interacting in, uh, um, in human affairs, I suppose, when you, when you look at a group of people, you begin to see them the way in which they play off each other. And, uh, uh, and all of a sudden, I had insights about Henry's participation in various events of uh, revolutionary history and the like that, uh, that would not come to someone who was simply setting out to understand one player in, the, uh, uh, in, in this, in this uh, uh, lar larger picture of uh, uh, of interaction, if that makes uh, if that makes sense. Uh, but the other thing is that, uh, by golly, I, by, by golly, I, I had found and, and and stumbled upon all kinds of uh, uh, new things, new stuff, new new documents, um, and and the like. Partially because uh, um, they're now accessible in ways that was not were not were not the case. Um, in uh, there's there are a lot of manuscripts uh, scattered throughout the country. Um, People like Henry, because especially Henry has a very, very distinctive um, signature, and so um, you know he was one of those uh, one of those people that uh, autograph collectors like to like to collect. And and those sometimes there's uh, scattered letters and stuff that turn up in weird places. Um, what uh, what those weird places have been doing for the last twenty or thirty years is putting their manuscript catalogs. Um, into digital form so that they're accessible on the internet. And so I found a lot of stuff that, um, uh, you know, 30 years ago would have been impossible to find. There's a letter uh, that uh, sustains about a three-page section of the, of, of the book um, in, the, in the 1780s, for example. Uh, I found a letter in which a friend of Henry's from out in, uh, in, in Botetourt County uh, has sent him a big... Uh, a big sack of uh, gold ore, and uh, wants Henry's advice on what to do. And uh, Henry, Hen what we have is Henry's response to this. And it's an absolutely, absolutely fascinating look at the way in which Henry thought about, um, you know, how to how to best uh, exploit this uh, um, 
this 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 resource and uh, and and the political dangers and of course you know gold gold fever might uh, and there might be people that try to do chicanery in the legislature and all of this sort of stuff. and then and then uh, and by the way I want six shares and um, <laughs> you know. so it, it's a it's it's an absolutely uh, it's an absolutely fascinating little story that um, you know I wouldn't have been able to tell. Um, Four years ago, because uh, because nobody had nobody had looked at the at, at at this letter, and and it was all of a sudden it turns up when you did a when you did a search uh, on on the internet. Gold, by the way, there there is gold mining in Virginia, um, up near like Warrenton. Have you ever done that road from uh, uh, Fredericksburg to to Warrenton? You go through some of the gold mining districts of uh, of Virginia that were developed in the. Um, in, in, the, in the 19th century, and um, and as I was looking into this, I was absolutely flabbergasted to learn that um, prior to 1849, in other words, prior to Sutter's Mill and the gold rush in California, um, the North Carolina Piedmont was the um, was the principal uh, area in which gold was being um, mined and uh, and produced in the United States, and the Virginia geology is is part of that same thing. Let me deal very, very briefly with, uh, with the Parsons Cause and the Stamp Act. The Parsons Cause, is, of course, took place in, uh, in, in Hanover uh, Courthouse. Uh, there's a painting here at the Historical Society by George Cook done in the 1830s that shows Henry um, arguing the Parsons Cause in Hanover County. It's one of those ones where Henry's up, hand is up like this. Apparently, that's how you... You know that's how you be an orator when you're, when you're, uh, when you're, when you when they're putting you on on canvas. Um, the Parsons cause uh, is fairly complicated to explain, but the key uh, element is that um, the legislature, the colonial legislature, had made provisions after um, bad crop years that suddenly sent the price of tobacco skyrocketing. Uh, perhaps uh, five or six times the normal normal uh, market price of tobacco. There were all kinds of public officials, including the clergy of the established Anglican Church, who were paid by contract in amounts of tobacco. In the case of the clergy, it was uh, 16,000 pounds of tobacco uh, a year. So what the legislature did because of this sudden uh, bad crop and the windfall that would be uh, burdensome on um, the taxpayers as they passed an act setting a fixed price of two pence per pound uh, and, and basically for, for that one year with the bad crop, um, uh, the Parsons would be paid at that rate rather than, uh, rather than at, at the elevated um, sort of windfall profit uh, market price of tobacco. There were a few Parsons who uh, objected to this, but rather than arguing uh, in the legislature when the debate was going on as to whether or not to pass this bill, they chose to wait and protest the colonial law uh, to authorities in London, particularly to the Bishop of London, who in turn protested to the Board of Trade. And ultimately, the Board of Trade interceded, and uh, the Privy Council declared the law uh, uh, void. Um, well, what this did was it set up the question of the legislative authority of Virginia's colonial legislature to enact th things for the good of its population vis-a-vis -vis imperial authorities, crown and parliament, uh, who, who's, who were beginning to try to assert their authority over the, uh, over the colonies. So this is 17... It's, uh, Parsons, the, 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 the Two-Penny Act is the Two-Penny Act of 1758, um, and this argument uh, goes on for, for several years and kind of reaches a peak um, in December of 1763 at Hanover Courthouse, where Henry argues on behalf of the vestry um, and um, essentially wins the case. That Technically, the case has already been lost, um, uh, but... Uh, but Henry basically gets the jury to return uh, a, a, a penalty of um, one farthing um, rather than 288 pounds sterling, which would be what the computed uh, difference was. Um, 
So Henry becomes a great hero in the Parsons cause, and at a personal level, this is what carries him into um, elected office as a member of the House of Burgesses at the first uh, opportunity for uh, for folks in what was then then it was from Louisa County uh, that sent him to the to the House of Burgesses uh, shortly after this success at the in the Parsons cause. What makes the Parsons cause truly significant, however, is its timing, because it poses the issue of the authority of the colonial legislator, or for that matter, the larger question of, the, of, of all of the colonial legislatures uh, in, in, in the North American colonies, uh, the question of their authority vis-a-vis -vis the authority of king and parliament. And it does it just as George Grenville is implementing the Stamp Act, which raises exactly the same constitutional principles. And so what happens is when, uh, when, when word of the Stamp Act, uh, again, the complications in the, uh, in the actual you know, narrative of this, but, uh, but basically George, uh, George Grenville announces to Parliament in 1764 that he's going to bring in legislation for a Stamp Act, and then the, the, a year later he brings it in. And in the meantime, um, Virginians and others uh, begin to complain about the prospect of a Stamp Act in theory. Uh, and then it hits the fan in the spring of 1765 when the legislature happens to be in session. Henry is now in his first term as a Burgess. Uh, he's been a Burgess for four or five days when the uh, text of the Stamp Act reaches Williamsburg. And because the, because the old guard, uh, John Robinson, the speaker, uh, Peyton Randolph, um, uh, Edmund Pendleton, uh, George Wythe, other, other prominent and older um, members of the Virginia's leadership, because they had protested um, in the previous session when they had word that they might do this, um, they, they were inclined to sort of let that, let that be and, um, uh, and not take further action until they'd heard about uh, the petitions that they'd sent in earlier in the, uh, some, some months earlier. That didn't sit well with Henry, who introduced a series of resolutions. He wrote seven of them. He introduced uh, five. One of them was rescinded after uh, uh, the, the day after it was passed. Uh, and these, these re the resolutions explicitly challenged using all the arguments that had been developed in the Parsons cause in the pamphlet literature and in newspaper essays and in Henry's speeches uh, and, and Hanover Courthouse, using all of those arguments because those arguments were immediately applicable to the new situation. Uh, what had been a, an argument over church governance now was an argument over the power of parliament uh, claiming to, uh, to be able to tax the colonies without representation and without their consent. So Henry, um, Henry introduced these resolutions. Um, as I said, one of, one of them was, uh, one of the five that were adopted was, uh, was rescinded. And Governor uh, Francis Fauquier was able to keep them all from being uh, published in, in the Virginia Gazette, uh, basically by threatening the editor with uh, pull, pulling um, um, the gov government um, uh, uh, printing a contract from him. Um, and so the Virginia Gazette never, never published the resolutions passed in Williamsburg, but all seven resolutions uh, were circulated to other places, and so they were published in Maryland and in Rhode Island and then uh, picked up from those newspapers. So all of a sudden, in, um, in the fall of 17, uh, I'm sorry, in the spring of 1765, um, Virginia and Patrick Henry were in the forefront of American um, resistance to, uh, to, to, the, to the Stamp Act. Now, what's important, uh, you know, sort of cut to the chase, one of the, one of the things that um, uh, historians of the American Revolution who may not agree on much of anything, but, but one of the things that they will agree on is that the, uh, that the Stamp Act uh, a crisis in 1764, 5, and 6 was the time in which the American colonies 
artic defined and articulated and some would say discovered the constitutional principles that become the fundamental argument between the North American colonies and the king and parliament, the fundamental argument that, uh, that then comes back, of course, uh, big time in 1776. So um, it's, a, it's a fascinating story in its own right. And um, in a couple years, maybe you can come back and I'll have finished the book that I've just started about the Stamp Act. <laughs> The, um, the stamp, Henry, Henry encounters, uh, if you read the accounts of the uh, American Revolution in, uh, in, in, in Virginia, of course, Henry, Henry um, ticked some folks off with his Stamp Act resolutions, um, not so much because they disagreed with the principle, because the uh, uh, Virginia um, uh, uh, leadership, the, the gentry leadership in the in the um, House of Burgesses and the Council were all unanimous in their belief that Parliament could not tax them. Um, but what, uh, what, what ticked off some of the older leaders was the fact that this guy, this was such an upstart. Um, he was, I think, 29 years old, and he'd been, been there for four or five days, and here he is doing this. Um, and so that was, uh, that was seen to be disruptive. Je Jefferson later talks about how how Henry basically stole the momentum from uh, from from his from his elders um, in the uh, in 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 the Stamp Act crisis. I'd like to say a little bit about Henry and uh, the, the the vexing issue of of slavery in in the American Revolution and and to start, of course. Um, we recognize, I, I, I was listening, John Meacham was on, uh, I don't know, C-SPAN or something, a uh, couple of, uh, uh, maybe a week ago or, or something, uh, talking about contemporary events, and uh, made the observation that, um, uh, that the, uh, the, the dispossession of the native tribes and the uh, institution of slavery are, as he put it, uh, America's um, two original sins, and that um, uh, you know, of course, the uh, the the whole question of of of, of slavery has been uh, something that has dogged our uh, our history for a long time. So, what I've been able to do in this book is um, document better than anyone had previously because I've gotten into some sources that other people uh, didn't, uh, uh, didn't, didn't investigate, didn't perhaps know to investigate. Um, I've got, I've got, I think I've got a better picture of Henry's involvement with slavery than, uh, than, than, than we had previously. And I can summarize that uh, very briefly, uh, again, uh, you know, rec recognizing that it's, uh, as, as Henry uh, came, came to recognize, that it's an, an ugly and um, um, uh, difficult subject. Henry's first, abs the first written comments that we have from Henry about slavery don't date until or don't don't appear until the 1760s, and so in an earlier draft of this book, that's when I took up the subject of slavery, and my editor very wisely um, uh, sort of pulled his hair out and said, "You, you can't do that." Um, he grew up in a slave society. You really need to say something earlier, um, and so that puts you as a uh, at, at, at a loss. It took me some time to figure out how to, how to deal with this, because, you know, I like to write accurate history based on primary sources. Uh, what if you don't have any uh, primary sources? Um, what, I, what, I what I decided that I, that I could do to illuminate Henry's early life, when he was, at all, for all intents and purposes, um, silent, at least as far as the surviving record goes. Uh, and, and by the way, one of the things that constantly, um, that, that a Henry uh, 
uh, biographer or researcher has to deal with is, is, the, is the fact of uh, the loss of records. Uh, Hanover County, as, as many of you know, uh, is one of those uh, uh, counties in the uh, 1850s or uh, coming up to say 1860, which sent its records to Richmond for safekeeping. Um, and they went up in smoke in the evacuation fire in 65. Um, and then Henry's uh, family uh, uh, papers, uh, to some extent, there are, there are some that have, you know, some of the uh, political documents, of course, and his, as a governor, uh, are in uh, what's now the Library of Virginia in the archives. Uh, but, but Henry's um, uh, family home at Red Hill, uh, after it had been expanded to a larger house, burned in 1919. And so, uh, so we know that uh, lots of the, what would, must have survived in terms of family records that could have shed some light on the operation of plantations and, and, and that sort of thing um, uh, were lost then. So, so what I decided to do was to dig into what could be learned about the nature of, of slavery as it was being practiced in, uh, particularly on the frontier in Hanover, uh, which is a slightly different from uh, uh, from, from Tidewater, and luckily there was some scholarship there. But also I was able, I think, to, to look closely um, at, uh, at, at two people who would have been influential in shaping young Patrick Henry's attitudes on the question of race and slavery, one being his, his uncle, the Reverend Patrick Henry, um, whose uh, only, only one of his sermons survived. It's upstairs in the... Uh, collections here, and it's uh, dull as dishwater. Um, but Henry, but but we do know what uh, what basically the Anglican ministers who were his contemporaries had to say about slavery in the 18th century, um, and uh, and the position taken, frankly, by the by the Anglican uh, Anglican Church in uh, in the colonies in in the 18th century. Um, and the other, the other source that can be brought to bear is the Reverend Samuel Davies. We know he heard those sermons, and Davies does speak about slavery uh, in a number of his uh, sermons, which, uh, which do survive and, and, and have, been, have been published, for that matter. So, what, so what, the, what Henry grew up with in the 1730s and, and, and 40s and perhaps into the 1750s, Henry grew up with an attitude towards slavery that would have been fairly typical for, um, for uh, gentry whites of, uh, of 18th century Virginia, which was slavery was in the Bible. It was okay. It was you know, sanctioned. It was just part of the way things were. Um, there wasn't much to be done about it except to um, treat your slaves well, um, teach them to read, and bring them to Christ. Now, by 1773, which is when Henry wrote a, um, uh, a letter that's widely been uh, reprinted. Uh, in, in fact, you can find it um, printed again and again and again in American newspapers in the 1820s and 30s by abolitionists who tried to use it to prove that Henry was an abolitionist uh, in, in the arguments that, you know, that eventually lead to the, uh, uh, to the, to the Civil War. By 1773, Henry is, is in dialogue with a number of um, Virginia Quakers, and, and most notably um, Robert Pleasance, um, who was uh, agitating for um, uh, essentially an anti-slavery position agitating to end the slave trade, which is something the Virginians do um, before the revolution, and to um, make it easier for slaveholders to free their slaves, which is something the Virginians do uh, after the revolution in, in 1782. Um, so Henry's in dialogue with, uh, with, with Robert Pleasance, and one of the, one of the, uh, the Pleasance's um, um, correspondence uh, some of it with, directly with Henry, uh, survives in letter books at Haverford College and in the Brock Collection at um, uh, the Huntington Library in, in, in California. And so in addition to this 1773 letters, which some of you may well have seen, in which Henry talks about how, uh, how astonishing it is that in this, in this enlightened age, 
that he, Patrick Henry, uh, should own slaves. It's unjustifiable. It's, it's, it's evil in terms of religion. It's unjustifiable in terms of the principles of, 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 the, uh, uh, of, the, of the Enlightenment. And yet, here I am. I own them. And, and, and this is the one thing I respect about Henry at this point. He, I, slaves of my own purchase. There's a candor about Henry that, uh, that, 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 you know, you don't have to agree with him. Um, and in this case, it's reflecting a tragic subject. But, but there's a candor and honesty about him that I, that I really have to respect. Slaves of my own purchase. Henry was not uh, a Tidewater aristocrat who could say, I've had slaves in my family for, uh, uh, you know, four generations. Gosh, what can we do? Um, and so he, so in 1773, he's articulating the fact that it's that slavery is is morally wrong, is uh, um, you know can't be justified by religion, and yet he, he, here it is, we you know it's all it's all around us, and I'm complicit in it, and he maintains that position um, throughout his uh, his career in in politics. It comes up uh, uh, the question of slavery comes up again in. Uh, uh, in the context of the um, uh, ratification debates over the Constitution in 1780, uh, Constitution's written in 1787, the, de the debates in Virginia go on um, leading up to the convention uh, in June of 1788 when Virginia ratifies by a vote of uh, 10, 10 votes, by a margin of 10 votes. Henry is, is, uh, is adamant that, um, that slavery is an, is an evil thing um, it is a bad thing for the country, and yet, what do we do about it? So there's a sense in which, over the course of the 60 years of his life, he goes from uh, the position that he got as a young as a young boy from uh, from from the opinion makers of, of of the day, which would have been that slavery was acceptable and uh, and we should uh, 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 a slaveholder should treat his slaves well teach them to read and bring them to, uh, uh, to, to religion, um, to the position that he pretty much ended up with in the 1790s, which is that slavery is evil and it's wrong, but I don't know what to do about it, and so you should treat them well, uh, teach them to read, and bring them to religion. Um, and, and, in, and in a very real way, because it's not until uh, there were early inklings of um, sort of a pro-slavery argument, but it's really not until the, uh, the antebellum years uh, that you start to get with Thomas Roderick Dew from William and Mary and others, you know, this argument that, uh, that slavery is somehow a positive good that we're familiar with in the, uh, uh, in the debates leading up to the, uh, to the Civil War. Um, Henry and his generation didn't think that way. And so um, there is, a, I think, a profound sense in which by I, I regard it as something of an achievement on the part of Henry and his generation to have come to the position that slavery is wrong. And there is a sense in which, having done that, they set the standard by which we now measure their failure. Let me talk briefly. Don't point it, yeah, we're okay here. <laughs> According to the clock, let me uh, let me talk briefly about uh, uh, briefly about Jefferson, and then a little bit about Washington, and then uh, sort of wrap up and take your take your questions. Um, Jefferson and Henry. Jefferson is uh, several years younger, born in uh, 1743. Henry in in, in 1736. Um, Jefferson witnesses Henry um, giving his speech in favor of his. Uh, uh, Stamp Act resolutions at the House of Burgesses. At this time, uh, Henry was, uh, Jefferson rather, had, had uh, graduated college at William and Mary and was uh, reading law with George Wythe. Um, so he actually heard, heard the speech, and uh, George and, and um, William Wirt, who was Henry's first biographer, uh, uses Jefferson's um, recollections as part of his uh, uh, recreation of what was going on with the uh, Stamp Act. Uh, uh, Stamp Act speech, which is the, the famous Caesar Brutus speech, where and and Je this is one of the things that Jefferson uh, rem remembers and documents that um, uh, Henry is supposed to have said uh, uh, Caesar had his Brutus, 
Charles I had his Cromwell and George III, and at that point the Speaker of the House of Burgesses interrupted and cried of treason, treason, and Henry is supposed to finish it by saying, and George III may profit by their example. Um, <laughs> so Jefferson, Jefferson and Henry were, uh, were, were, were friends um, for a long time uh, until 1781 when uh, Jefferson was in the, was uh, uh, Henry's successor as governor. Henry served as governor from uh, 1776, first elected governor of the Commonwealth, elected on the 29th of June, um, 76, so uh, be before the 4th of July, um, and served those three years. Jefferson was his successor, and in Jefferson's second term as governor, um, of course, the British invaded the state, and uh, all hell broke loose. Um, the legislature uh, fled from Richmond to Charlottesville. Uh, Jefferson went with. Um, and then when uh, Bannister Tarleton's armies uh, or, or cavalry troop came to Charlottesville, uh, Jefferson uh, was able to gather together his papers and uh, uh, go by, uh, by, by horse through the woods past Carter's Mountain and on to his uh, retreat house at, uh, at Poplar Forest in Bedford County. Uh, while the legislature scrambled over the mountains to um, um, and, and reconvened in Stanton, it was a um, it was an awful time to be uh, in a leadership position in this in in the state government. Um, and once they got to Stanton, uh, there was a guy named George Nicholas from Albemarle County who made a motion uh, in in the House of Delegates um, asking. Uh, for an inquiry into the conduct of the executive during the recent emergency. Um, Jefferson uh, was, was in, in, in Poplar Forest, and as governor wouldn't have, wouldn't have been in the, in, in the house to witness this anyway, but, but was down in Poplar Forest when this, when this took place. And uh, when word got to him, he took it as a personal uh, insult. Uh, in fact, as I think I demonstrate in the treatment of this in, in, in the book, um, he was not the only member of the executive branch who was insulted because the members of the, there was, at that time there was a governor's council uh, and they felt that they had been tarred with the same brush and that uh, they too were being accused. And in, and in fact, when you, on the face of it, um, it would make a perfectly responsible thing for the legislature to do uh, at a time when the uh, defenses of the colony had, or, the, or the, uh, the state, the Commonwealth, uh, had, had pretty much collapsed in the face of an enemy invasion, it would not be an irresponsible thing for the legislature to inquire as to just how the hell this happened. Um, but Henry, uh, Jeff, Jefferson decided that, this that Patrick Henry was behind it. Uh, George Nicholas, who um, who, this is wonder, a wonderful passage in one of Jefferson's letters in which he talks about how George Nicholas was like a minnow, that you can see him swimming around and the waters are tempestuous because there's a whale down below. And, and, and this is just a minnow swimming around and in and out of his rectum, the whale's rectum. This is, this is Jefferson's, right? But the but the real act the the real mover and shaker is that whale in the water, and that's Henry, um, and and essentially the, the 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 tragedy the tragedy is that from this point forward I I cannot um, uh, find a time in which those two men were ever in the same room uh, uh, again, um, and then of course Jefferson Jefferson nurses this. Uh, uh, this 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 wrong that he feels Henry has uh, um, uh, uh, perpetrated against him, and uh, um, and then Jefferson outlives Henry by 26 years, and so has plenty of opportunities to comment on this, <laughs> which which he does. Um, I think un I think this is un the unfortunate reality is that you've got two guys with very very different temperaments. Um, Henry was accustomed to the rough and tumble of legislative politics in a way that Jefferson is kind of thin-skinned at, at this point in his life, at least. Um, 
think about Henry as a, as, a, as a trial lawyer practicing in the county courts, which is something that Jefferson never did. Jefferson only practiced in the general court. Uh, in the county courts, you'd argue against an attorney in a case, and then the two of you would ride off to the next court, uh, certainly have dinner together, possibly share the same bed, and then in the next morning um, end up uh, arguing either with or, or, or against each other once again. Um, and Henry uh, basically was, was accustomed to that and I think probably uh, figured because Henry had suffered invasions of the Commonwealth and he is governor and knew how difficult it was to, to get the, frankly, to get information about what the hell was happening uh, and to know how to deploy militia units and stuff in, in order, in, a, in any sensible way to, to respond to the emergency. If there was anybody in the world who knew what Jefferson faced, it was Patrick Henry. And I think the expectation is, on, on Henry's part was um, what in fact happened. At the next session of the legislature, the legislature said, gosh, you know, he did everything, he, Jefferson was not at fault. But uh, in terms of the two of them, the damage, uh, the damage was done. Let me speak very, very briefly about Jefferson and Washington, because I think it's an interesting and illuminating connection. Um, and, and again, it's a, it, was a, it was a fun part to, to tell the story. Washington and, and, and Jefferson um, probably, well, they, they, they certainly had contact with one another in, in the legislature, um, during, in the colonial legislature during the 1760s. Uh, they served together uh, in, the, um, in the First and Second Continental Congresses. In fact, uh, Washington, uh, Edmund Pendleton, and Henry um, rode together from Mount Vernon up to the first uh, uh, meeting of the Continental uh, Congress in, in 1774. Um, and uh, we have it from the um, authority of the Pennsylvania uh, physician Benjamin Rush uh, that, uh, that Washington uh, confided in Henry uh, as he was accepting command of the uh, Continental Armies and basically com confided in Henry some of the same fears that he expressed to his wife that um, th th essentially th this could turn out awful. <laughs> um, and, and, and if so, my reputation goes with it. Um, so during, during the uh, first years of the, uh, of, of the Revolutionary War, when, when Henry was in the governor's office here in, um, in, in Richmond, um, in large measure, he was helping Washington's army with troops, blankets, foodstuff, gunpowder, um, inoculations against smallpox, um, and they built up a, they built up a very substantial working relationship during Henry's three years as uh, first three years as governor uh, of the of the Commonwealth. Um, Washington and uh, uh, I'm getting ahead of him. The other thing that happened in 1777 and eight. Be 1778. Um, after the Battle of Saratoga in 1778, um, Washington at that point in his military career was basically trying not to be defeated um, with his armies in, in the area of the Pennsylvania, what was then called the Jerseys, uh, and, uh, and the kind of environs of New York. And he was kind of moving around. Not, not, nothing really wonderful was happening there, except that he wasn't being defeated. Um, which was sort of his strategy for the whole war. Uh, um, but, uh, but of course, uh, General Horatio Gates got to accept the surrender of uh, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne at Saratoga. And all of a sudden, Gates looked like you know, some sort of spectacularly successful general. And there were some disgruntled um, folks in Washington's circle, uh, led particularly by a General Conway, who started agitating to have Washington relieved of command and replaced with General Gates. Benjamin Rush was part of this circle. He was, he was then in Congress, and Rush was ticked off at Washington because uh, of the state of the uh, hospitals 
which uh, he thought Washington had not done, as though, as though Washington didn't have enough other things to do, uh, that Washington hadn't done enough for the state of the hospitals. And so Rush, Rush is all ticked off about that and writes, having met Henry when Henry was in Philadelphia for the, for the uh, uh, meetings of the Continental Congress, writes to Patrick Henry a letter basically advocating Washington's replacement. And he did, he did a, a curious kind of letter that apparently was fairly common in, um, in, in, in the war, in wartime during the 18th century, which is to say it's an unsigned letter. It's not really an anonymous letter because the, what basically they did is they left their signature off lest the document be captured by the British and published in the newspapers and embarrass people, uh, which happened on both sides whenever they could, could do that sort of thing. So they left their signature off with the expectation that the recipient uh, would recognize the handwriting and know who it came from. Apparently, Henry had never seen Russia's handwriting. So there's this letter, and it's like, whoa, what's this about? Um, so he sends it to Washington. <laughs> Washington thanks him effusely, and that's an end to that. And, and in fact, for the rest of his life, Washington remembers this critical moment in the Revolution when Henry had his back. Now, the two of them disagree vehemently over whether or not to ratify, ratify the Constitution in 1787 and 1788. But unlike a lot of um, uh, contemporaries, Washington never lost sight of uh, the core virtues that he saw in Henry and knew that, that there was, uh, you know, that regardless of what Henry was up to, it was not, uh, uh, it, was, it was not treason, it was not, uh, uh, it, it, it had his vision of the, of the good of the country in, in hand. And so later, later in life, um, after Washington has retired from, well, during, during Washington's administration, uh, he tries to get Henry into, um, into a whole series of uh, public offices. Would you like to be Secretary of State? Would you like to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court? Would you like to be Ambassador to France? Would you like to be Ambassador to Spain? Um, you know, these kinds of uh, overtures are, and by this time, Henry, frankly, uh, after, uh, after 1792, Henry is in increasingly bad health uh, and basically uh, retired from politics and, uh, and living um, um, in the vicinity of, uh, uh, of, of Red Hill and Long Island and, and Charlotte County and stuff, and pretty much in a, in a, in a happy retirement, um, making money um, as, a, as, as a defense lawyer. How much money we don't know because we don't have his accounts uh, as uh, certainly for uh, if he kept a separate account book for his uh, his income as a defense lawyer it has not survived um, so anyway 1799 America is torn apart by um, arguments between the what become the Federalist and the Jeffersonian Republican uh, parties the beginning of the of the new party system a great deal of of, uh, of animosity, uh, the the press is 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 uh, is, is hatefully vindictive. Um, newspapers are partisan. We think that's a new thing for the media. It's not a new thing for the media. Uh, you know, newspapers are, are partisan and are uh, are, are telling um, eat their readers uh, you know a particular take of thing. And and the whole the whole um, the whole atmosphere is, uh, is 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 even more troubled and roiled by the fact that um, Great Britain and France are at war. Um, I think the thing that it's it seems to me that it's comparable to a lot of the situations in which um, political disagreement may have happened in the. 1950s that was exacerbated by the tensions and the fears that came with the Cold War, and it's that kind of a uh, that kind of a really nasty situation. Now, Washington and Henry um, were old-fashioned guys who didn't like political parties. They basically didn't like political parties. The founders, in general, didn't. That's why the that's why the um, um, 
Electoral College was set up in the way that it originally was, where um, the electors would get together and vote for the president, and the guy that got most votes was the president, and the guy that got the second most was the vice president, um, which didn't work out when the party system started, and all of a sudden you had the vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, and the presidential candidate, Thomas Jefferson, with the same number of votes. So it got thrown into the, you know, in, into the... Uh, uh, into the House of Representatives and went some 30-odd things and, you know, ballots and stuff. And then uh, in, uh, in 1804, they uh, uh, passed an um, uh, amendment to the Constitution to change it to the, to the present system where you have, you know, tickets running against each other. At any rate, in that, out of that perspective, um, when, uh, when Jefferson and Madison were opposing the Alien and Sedition Acts with what are known as the Virginia and the Kentucky Resolutions, which threatened interposition, that the idea that the state, when, when the federal government did something unconstitutional, the state should intervene. Um, and in, in the case of Jefferson's Kentucky Resolutions, it's getting pretty close to a threat of secession. This troubles Washington, this troubles Henry greatly. Washington writes to Henry and says, you know, we're having an, a national emergency. Will you please stand for office? And Henry goes back and, and, uh, and in the spring of uh, 1799 is elected back into the General Assembly uh, with uh, his last speech at, uh, at Charlotte Courthouse in which he calls for, for, uh, for unity. Um, and, uh, and, and basically calls for, um, as, as the record that we have of the speech, uh, uh, if, 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 the, if the government is uh, going wrong, sure, overthrow the government. But first, he says, first try to change it by constitutional ways, by the ballot box. Um, I'd like to close with, with, with just a, a very, very quick comment about Henry's legacy. And we're lucky to have his express comment on that. When he died in uh, June of 1799, he left two documents in his law office at Red Hill. One was, one was his last will and testament. And next to it was a copy of his Stamp Act resolutions, on the back of which he wrote a note to posterity. Uh, the note ends with, it, it poses the question, um, you know, was the revolution a good thing? Um, and, uh, and he says the, the answer to that is going to be with what Americans do with their freedom. Uh, if they're wise, it'll be a good thing. If they're not, it'll be a disaster. Uh, reader, whoever thou art, practice virtue in your life and encourage it in others. And when, we, when he refers to practicing virtue, what he's, re, what he's referring to, the larger vision of, of virtue in Henry's mind, is, is the statement that he wrote into our Declaration of Rights here in Virginia, which is still a part of the Constitution of Virginia, 14th Article of the Constitution of Virginia, that no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. That's the legacy of the man that I, uh, when, when, when I liked the guy, that's the guy I really liked. <laughs>
in a coffee house here in Richmond about finding some ways to strengthen the um, finances of, uh, of Congress under the, un under the Articles of Confederation, the uh, government that preceded the, the, the current uh, Constitution, uh, and basically said, to, uh, I think he would have regarded him as young Jimmy, um, uh, you, you, you write a bill and I'll support it on the floor. Um, but uh, in, in 1785 and 6, he had, some, uh, he had some dealings with uh, Congress's meddling with um, whether or not the, um, to surrender navigation of the Mississippi River to Spain uh, in exchange for a, a trade treaty. And suddenly, I think Henry felt betrayed and aware of the ways in which um, the northern congressman could betray Virginia's interests. And so a consolidated government, he thought, was, was too powerful and too dangerous. And what he did is he, he opposed it vehemently. Uh, the argument that I make in the book, on, and I, I think is solid, <laughs> is, that, um, is that he did that in order to, um, in order to strengthen his hands to uh, get the kinds of amendments that he thought were uh, requisite. But clearly, um, as, as you indicate, um, Madison and, uh, and John Marshall um, oppo opposed him, uh, favored the Constitution in the ratification convention. Um, he and Madison had a kind of testy relationship for the rest of his life. Uh, Henry and Marshall uh, became best of friends, uh, in large part because they uh, uh, practiced law together in the British debts case in the early 1790s. Do you um, um, see any connection between Patrick Henry's letter on slavery, which I believe you said was 1772? 73. Mm -hmm. 73. Has any connection to uh, Lord Mansfield's decision in the Somerset case, which is May 1772, in which he um, emancipates actually an American slave right. who happens to be in uh, England? Virginia, in fact, yeah. yeah. I mean, I realize that um, Lemuel Shaw um, emancipated a slave in Boston, and the lawyer who argued for the emancipation used Lord Mansfield's case as a precedent. Yeah, there's no, there's no explicit reference in Henry's letter to the Mansfield case. It's certainly, uh, it's certainly of a period. What, what, I, what I would add, and, and of course at this point, um, manumission is not, uh, is not yet uh, legal in, in, uh, in, or easy in, in the Commonwealth. Um, I've, got an, I've got a section in, in this long sequence of, art, of, of stuff about Henry and slavery, which stretches a, a page here and then a page there, you know, as you go over the 30-year period. But, um, but uh, some of you may have seen the Discovery magazine that the Times-Dispatch publishes, and, and there was an interesting article in this most recent one about Gravel Hill the, uh, over in Curl's Neck. The, uh, the, free, the church that was basically uh, part of a free black community. Um, Robert Pleasance, Henry's friend and the Quaker abolitionist, is the one who established that community by freeing many of his slaves in seven, in, while Henry was governor. So it's before the manumission laws, but Pleasance wanted to free his slaves and set up this, set them up with land and stuff. Um, and, and one of the things that I found in the stuff at Haverford is a letter from Pleasance to another Quaker, which is why it's escaped Henry, uh, Henry scholars all these years, to another Quaker talking about how his meeting with Governor Henry and the legal advice that Henry was giving him about how to keep his angry neighbors from messing up this, this early plan at, uh, uh, at, at uh, manumission and stuff. So, uh, uh, so it's, it's an interesting wrinkle on that story. Thank you so very, very much. <laughs>